Good morning. Jack, thank you for that very heartfelt introduction for today. I appreciate that. So, okay, a couple of administrative things. If you are young, not young at heart, but if you are young, if you're 18 and under, and you want to take notes and you want to show those notes to Miss Christie at the end, I highly encourage you to do that. There's a table in the back corner over there, which Emily has organized and coordinated like to the the best possible use of beautiful stickers and guidance to where your pages just go back there and look at it take take note of that's awesome <clears throat> thank you Emily for doing that by the way also past the restrooms on the left hand side in the back there is a, a family room so a family service but if you just need a little bit more space you need a little bit more area to be maybe a little bit louder, that's fine. Go back there. The service is being live broadcast back there as well. So you're welcome to go at any time. Um, okay, so. What room? It's the back left. It's the, door, the only door that's open. That's the best I can give you. Yeah. What is it? E1. E1. Thank you. E1. Okay, so those are my admin notes. Um, you know, Mike and I have been sitting on this text for a while now, um, and it's something that both of us have over the years considered and walked through, but there's something unique about when you go to actually preach and teach on, on a passage like this. And so I would say it's, it's been a, a really encouraging experience for both of us to where we solidified in our viewpoints a certain things uh, about our faith and our salvation, or our assurance of that salvation. So hopefully you're going to hear some of that. Hopefully you'll even hear some of that transition and that progress of just being more sure of where we stand in our faith and in what the Word tells us about that. So my prayer, our prayer this morning, is that this is going to be encouraging to every person here. It should be an encouragement thing as we continue in our journey of following Jesus. Um Certainly this passage has been like torn apart and examined under a microscope by thousands of scholars and theologians for like 2,000 years. So um, what we really want to accomplish is, is give a fair assessment, a, a fair viewing and consideration of the passage as a whole. Really there's like three verses that are kind of like, uh, I'm not sure what's going on here, but the passage as a whole, I think is very clear. Um, we're going to do Q&A like we always do, so definitely text your questions if you have those. But as Jack said, both Mike and I are going to come up and share our thoughts and hopefully uh, get us in a very solid place here in Hebrews chapter 6. So I'm going to jump in and I'm going to pray and we're going to get started. So Lord, we thank you for today. We do. We thank you for your word. God, we thank you that you are in control. Father, that you have a plan for us, you have a purpose for us, and you've given us this passage for a reason, for a purpose. My prayer, Lord, this morning is that we would see what that purpose is. Why did you write these words to us? Why did you inspire the author of Hebrews to write these specific words, knowing where we would be all these years later? Help us to see with clarity. God, remove anything in our mind even things that we've been taught in the past, would you just take away everything that is not truth, that is not your truth, and let only the truth of you, God, remain. Help us in that, and help Mike and I even to follow your Spirit's leading now to bring clarity to this text. We need your help when we ask for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, I'm warning you right now, I'm going to go fast. For two reasons. One is because I have a lot to cover. And two, I don't want to lull you into like this kind of, I can just relax now. I'm going to go fast. So hopefully you just stay with me, okay? All right, you're already not even paying attention. That's okay. <clears throat> All right, so this morning, I'm not going to say that I have like this huge, awesome um, thesis statement like I normally do. I'm going to say we got a guiding principle. Lee, would you put up the guiding principle on the screen? It says this. Nope, guiding principle that the little text says. Okay, I was about to read it on the page. Okay, here we go. We must heed the warnings issued here 
and strive to mature in our faith as evidenced by our perseverance and obedience. The whole text, this is what we got to keep in mind. We have to heed the warnings. Whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> heed the warnings issued here. Strive to mature in our faith, faith as evidenced by our perseverance and our obedience. Three guiding principles. Um, three declarations, I should say, that will, will stand out in the text. Now we go to number one. There's a strong warning issue to all believers. We're going to see that. Number two, there is a clear call to action for all believers. And number three, there's a strong reminder of the certainty of God's promise. When we look at this text, that's what we're going to see. We're actually going to see a series of these unfold. There's going to be a warning and a call to action. A warning and a call to action. And then it's going to finish with this certainty of God's promises. So I'm going to read... From Hebrews chapter 5, starting at verse 11 and continuing. So here's the text. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled. No, that's, that's not right. 11, starting at verse 11. Sorry. Go back one. There we go. About this we have much to say, and it's hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment, trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. All right, so of those three declarations that I gave you just a minute ago, which one of these is that? It's a warning, right? It's a strong warning, I would say. Remember the context. Jewish Christians, they have a rich, rich history of Judaism, which is like coursing through them. It is who they are. They're also experiencing hardship. They're coming under persecution because of their newfound faith. It's not an easy time for them. But does that give them an excuse? It does not. It does not give them an excuse to do anything other than pursue Christ. So, here's the warning. He says, look, you guys, you've become dull of hearing. You can't, your ears are stopped up. In fact, you should be teachers by now, but you're not. You need people to teach you again the things that you should already know and have mastered. That sounds pretty harsh, right? This is not condemnation. Hear me, this is not him belittling his audience. It's calling them in this strong correction. He called them out for their inadequate behavior. Why do you think he needs to be so strong in his warning? Thoughts? They're not progressing. What happens if you and your faith don't progress? Is that a good thing? It opens the door to a lot of things, right? A lot of bad things. The reason he's being so harsh and so strong in his warning is because there is a lot of danger ahead if they continue down this path. He goes on, though. He says, you need milk because you're unskilled in what? In the word. You're unskilled in the word of righteousness. You need solid food. You need maturity and growth in your understanding of who God is and his word to you. So what's happening here? Some of these Jewish Christians, they're starting to backtrack and backpedal into their old Jewish practices. And they're actually beginning to look to those things that they used to do as a means by which to be spiritually secure. So the modern day equivalent for me and for you would be for if we were to go back and entertain some unhealthy things that we've done in our past. Things that have made us feel comfortable and good and, and perhaps even secure. Or, probably more likely, is that we are listening to and entertaining false teachers of our day, of which there are many, and mixing our theology with their false instruction. We're taking pieces of these various false teachings and we're putting at least some hope in the falsity rather than in Jesus alone. That's a danger that we all face. How many of you can just, in your mind, don't, don't say it out loud, but can think of a false teacher right now today? Okay, there's a lot of them out there. So this is a very real danger. 
There's the warning. Warning number one. Tracking? Dull. You're dull of hearing. Get it out. Clean out your ears. Next, call to action. So we're going to pick up in verse 3. Uh, uh, verse 1 of chapter 6. I can speak. Promise. All right. Therefore, thus leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and an instruction about washing, laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. So the call to action here isn't for us to forget what we've learned in the beginning. In, in a lot of ways, you're thinking like, okay, we got to move on so we can just move past that. But that's not what he's saying. He's saying once you have those milk-based sort of foundational basic principles down, you've got to build on that, build on that, and then begin to grow. And one of the phrases, look down at verse 14 of chapter 5, the last verse, 14, right? 514? The phrase that stands out to me there is trained by constant practice. Trained by constant practice. Does this at all sound to you like occasional or sporadic? No. Not at all. So quick story that I hope will illustrate this. Um, my dad was a fantastic golfer. He was a scratch golfer. Semi-pro kind of like he was really, really good. And he wanted me to be better than him. So I can remember from like this high, outside with a golf club in my hand all the time. In fact, he built like this huge golf cage in our backyard, which I'm sure my mom loved, right? Huge, I'm talking like this giant net, right? Golf pad and all that stuff, golf clubs cut down. And so he would walk me through the basics of the swing, every aspect of the swing, perfect every time. And if I mess it up or I did something out of order, no, stop. Go again. Address the ball. Half step to the left, full step to the right, ball centered. All right, now look at your grip. How is it? Like, what are, you, what, are your, what are your hands doing? Where does your power come from? Okay, now begin to swing back. Every single moment, left arm completely straight. Don't bend your elbow. Don't move your hips. Don't bend your knees. Every single Begin to draw through the ball. All right, your power comes in the six inches before and the six inches after you make contact with the ball. That's where your power is. High follow through looking chest at the target every single time, over and over and over again. And he would let me go with him on the golf course, but I could never play. I would caddy for him and watch him and, and all these things. And eventually I got to play, and, and I got to be decent. I would say pretty good for a high schooler. But, you know, music and band and all kinds of stuff got in the way, so I, I kind of fell off from that. Um, and he moved on to other things too, not, not from golf, <laughs> but from getting me to be like him. Um, but I'm telling you right now, the basics were drilled into me to such a degree that I can pick up a golf club right now, go outside and hit a ball pretty good. Now, give you an example. Um, last year at the pillar retreat for all the families are out there, a bunch of the guys went golfing and I got separated. I was running late. And so I pulled up. They had already teed off on the first hole in there in the middle of the first fairway. And I come jogging up. I'm like, hey, can I play with you guys? So Brian O'Day, he hands me a seven iron, throws a ball on the ground, just goes, do your best. I was like, all right. <laughs> so I grab this club. I address the ball, half step to the left, right. And I'm like, just like this. And I go, hit the ball, strike it perfectly. I'm not bragging, but it was perfectly 10 feet from the pin. And all of them just look at me and go, what just happened? <laughs> not my clubs. No warm-up, no glove, haven't hit a ball probably in months, and it's only because I've been trained by constant practice, it was drilled into me that I could do that. The same thing is true for us. This is a call to action for you. We must dig into the spiritual practices that shape us and mature us as we follow after Jesus. Because if you don't, you begin to drift away. We've already had a message on that. You can go back and listen to it. In the Christian walk, there is no idol. There is no standstill. And I want to quote the, the great theologian, Big Tom Callahan. He says, you're either growing or you're dying. There ain't no third direction. Right? 
In following Jesus, you're either moving toward him or you're moving away from him. There is no static, still, just idling and waiting. It doesn't exist. There's a call to action. Work, work, work. Are you earning your salvation? No. No, you are not. And we're going to get to that. All right. Now the next morning and the controversial verses. Let's look at Hebrews 6, 4 through 8. I'm going to read on this side. For it is impossible, in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. For the land that has drunk the rain that falls that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those who, for whose sake it is cultivated, receives a blessing. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Okay, so you're reading that, you're like, eh, what's, what's so controversial about that? At the core of the controversy is the question of whether or not this passage is teaching that you can lose your salvation. That's kind of what this boils down to. Let me just, let me just walk through this real quick. Put up verse 4 again, Lee, if you would, please. Let's look at the language describing these people. One more back. All right, so we have people that have once been enlightened. They've tasted the heavenly gift. They've shared in the Holy Spirit. And they've tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the power of the ages to come. Now, to me, that is describing a Christian. Would you agree with that? Okay. The reason I'm convinced of that is because the word used right there... Uh, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have tasted the goodness of the word of God, is only that word tasted is only used one other time in the New Testament. And we just talked about it a couple of weeks ago in chapter 2, verse 9. Can anybody rem- remember what that text basically says about Jesus? He, Jesus tasted death on our behalf. Did he sample death? Was it just kind of a, let me just kind of check it out a little bit? No, he tasted death in that he died in our place. It was a full immersion in that. So when people are tasting the heavenly gift and tasting the goodness of God, these are Christians, believers. Are you tracking now? Because after that, it says, go down, Lee, to the next verse. Oh, no, so go back up. It is impossible. Okay, impossible. Now go down to the next verse. For these people who have tasted these things that are believers to then have fallen away, fallen away, to restore them again since they are crucifying the Son of God once again. So believers, and now we're saying that there's a falling away. It's not that it's impossible to fall away. That's not what he's saying. It's impossible once they've fallen away to restore them again to repentance. So now we're like, okay. It seems like on the surface it's teaching us that you can fall away. You understanding and seeing the heart of the controversy in the verse. Okay, now there is no shortage of how people work through this passage to explain it. Some people say that these are not really true believers. Therefore, it's not describing a loss of salvation. They're not believers, so they're not losing their salvation. Yes. Some say it's a hypothetical. This is just a hypothetical example, and it's used to strengthen the power of the warning being issued here. But it's not. It's not true. It can't happen. Others say this isn't actually referring to apostasy. Now, that is a weird word, but here we give you a brief definition. Apostasy. The total rejection of Christianity by a baptized person who, having at one time professed the faith of Christianity and publicly rejecting it. That's apostasy, like turning away completely. People are saying that this isn't really what this passage is talking about. They're not talking about apostasy. But there's an important principle here that we need to keep in mind when trying to interpret Scripture, and that is this. The obscure and the vague, they never define our theology. You can't just take one verse and define your entire emphasis of a doctrine. It doesn't work that way. We always bring the clear and direct Scriptures to bear on these types of biblical passages. Okay, 
Here's the danger that we're being warned about. And it's on one of two ends of a spectrum. One is that Christians are in danger when they're either coasting or doing nothing with their faith. They're Christians, but they've not gone on a tree. There's nothing they're doing with their, their life to further the kingdom of God. Or they're at the other end where they're doing as much as they can in order to earn their salvation. These are the two ends of the spectrum that we do not want to find ourselves in. So the one who does nothing with their faith is found in verse 8. They are believers whose lives bear thorns and thistles and are near to being burned, cursed rather. Their end is to be burned. That is the field, not the person. The field's end is to be burned. This is a life wasted for the sake of Christ. It's someone who has repented and believed but not gone on to maturity like those warned in verse 511. The one who tries to earn or maintain their salvation are the ones being addressed at the beginning of verse 6. They're relying on things other than Jesus for their salvation. And we pick up on those dangers in 6.6. It says they are crucifying Jesus again. In other words, they think a sacrifice on the cross was not enough, and so they're trying to contribute to that, sending him to the cross again and again and again, which cannot be done. Hopefully you can see why the harsh warning is being issued here, because we are in need of a similar warning, my friend. Even though you and I, I pray, have professed faith and are followers of Jesus, we are in danger of wasting the life that we have been given. And we must go on to maturity and produce fruit in our lives. I'll put it this way, cheesy, old, maybe you think it's not cool or whatever. But it, it drives the point home. If you were put on trial for being a Christian... Would there be enough evidence in your life to convict you? Plain and simple, right? Think about it in those terms. Now, reminder, this is not about earning anything. We earn nothing. But it is about loving God and loving others and bringing him all the glory we possibly can in this life. But perhaps the question is still looming large in your mind. Can I actually lose my salvation? You're like, you skipped that part. So, here's what we're going to do. Quick, quick poll. On the count of three, I want you to just shout out yes or no to the answer, can you lose your salvation according to the Bible? Are you ready? One, two, three. No. Okay. I got a lot of no's, but I did hear a s I mean, there's somewhere. I don't know where it came from, but I did hear that. Okay. Let me quickly show you why I believe what I believe and then wrap up the passage and turn it over to Mike. So I'm going to go really quick through a bunch of scriptures. Lee, the first one, 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. Perfect language here, right? Whoa, 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 not that fast. <laughs> new creation. The old has passed away. The new has come. Next one. Ezekiel 36, 26. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. There's a heart transplant that's taken place, right? That heart of stone is removed, and he has given you a heart of flesh. Next one. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Go back one, Lee. Back one verse. Okay. We're dead, but made alive. Have been saved and are seated in the heavenly places. One more. Nope. Just those for now. Okay. So, what are these describing? A transformation that has taken place in your life. Think about it like a caterpillar. A caterpillar transforms into what? Once that caterpillar has become a butterfly, can it become a caterpillar again? It can't be undone. There's a transformation that has taken place. That's the language that is being used here. Now we go on to another aspect. John 5, 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes in who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Go to the next one. These are all building the same point. Whoever believes in the Son of God 
has eternal, they're in possession of eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. One more, I think. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Eternal life has been given. He says we'll never perish and we cannot be snatched out of his hand. So these verses describe an eternal life established at conversion. It's something that cannot and will not be taken away. All right, one more aspect of this, Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation... And believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. You were sealed. When you heard and when you believed at the moment of salvation, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit, and he is the guarantee of your inheritance as you persevere in your faith. All right, a few more, just, just so you know, like... This is not just a few hand-picked versions. Just put them up there, Lee, real quick, and, and I'll read to them. Six, John 6, 37. For all the Father gives will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will not cast out. Next. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. And this life is in the Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. The Scriptures bear it out, my friends, that a person transformed by the grace of God cannot lose the salvation that He gives them. Now, can they go through seasons of wandering and backsliding and perhaps even rebellion? Yes. Absolutely. That's why we have passages like the prodigal son and warning passages like this and all throughout the New Testament. You know, 2 Corinthians 13.5 tells us to examine ourselves and see if we're in the faith. It's another warning passage. But for the Christian, for you, if you're a believer here, you should examine yourself not to see if you're a believer. You should be assured in that. But if you are maturing in your pursuit of Christ, what evidence is in your field? Is there much fruit or are there thorns and thistles? All right, let me wrap this up and hand it over to Mike. A last call to action. Let's look at 9 through 12. Hebrews 6, 9 through 12, another call to action. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust, so as to overlook your work, that's important to him, and the love that you have shown for his name and serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promise. So there we go. Oh, go back a little more, sorry. That's right. Where am I at? A full assurance of hope to the end. He tells you, don't be sluggish, but through faith and patience inherit the promise. So ask yourself, where is your hope lacking? Or is it? Where are you sluggish in your spiritual life? Are your faith and your patience deficient in some way? All right. Last for me is a reminder of God's promises. And I think it's intentional that the author put this here at the end. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no greater, no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. 
So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character's purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath so that by two unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, who have fled to refuge that might have a strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus is gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a priest forever at the order of Melchizedek. This ties directly into the assurance of salvation. God made an oath to the heirs of the promise, which includes us. He is unable to lie. The promise of salvation is guaranteed. So rest assured in it. It is finished. We have this sure and steadfast anchor. I love this language. A sure and steadfast anchor of the soul and a hope that is based on the great high priest himself, Jesus Christ. So, let me wrap up with this. Be warned. Yes, there is work to do and there are dangers lurking to pull us off the track and even just into idleness as believers. But more than that, be encouraged that your salvation is secure in the promise of the Lord and he will keep us and sustain us as we strive to be the faithful followers that Jesus calls us to be. Amen? Okay, I'm going to invite Mike to come up here. And you might think like, dude, that was like hardcore. What's Mike going to touch about? Well, we're about to find out, but I think you might be a little bit surprised. So... Quoted Tommy Boy. <laughs> In direct violation of our rules. It's like no Tommy Boy, no Zoolander, no Michael Scott. Because I wanted to say nib high football rules to win my argument. Okay. So before I get started, um, I'm a big fan of uh, history. And I really like studying the office of the president. I'm always like kind of fascinated by this, the responsibility. Um, like I like the weird things like uh, like what kind of soap does the president use? I don't know. You, some of you heard me talk about this. Like there was a barber shop and the, all the presidents had the same barber for like 40 years until until President Obama got there. He brought in his own barber. And so the idea of like how cool would it be just to see these things? So there's a famous picture I like a lot that reminded me of what's happening right now. Lee, there's a picture that says OC on it, and this is one of my favorite presidential pictures. And if you've never seen this one. Uh, the big ham, Bill Clinton, gets back on the stage, and Obama's just like, oh, you got to be kidding me. And apparently, you don't think this is funny as I do, but if you get <laughs> President Obama as Pastor Trace and me as Bill Clinton here, like, hey, everybody, and he's just rubbing his head. He's like, he's prepped for weeks, then I get up here and talk and just ruin everything. Uh, all right. I just, I, as soon as we said we're going to do, I always think about that picture, and I just think about what had been going on in President Obama's mind, and why would anyone let Bill Clinton back up there, you know, so, anyways. That's not a political knock. It's just like, you know, if you're the president, get the, the other guys going, right? Okay. So we have two texts. Um, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to try to defend it. So what I want to do, um, I'm a big fan of debating scripture. I'd say on a personal level, Michael Young, as, as a human being, I mean, I love a good scripture fight. Like, I love, like, hey, if somebody disagrees with me, I love, like, talking scripture. And I, I don't love it because I like being right. Some people like to debate because they like the feel of, of beating somebody. Like, I like debating scriptures because like, Michael Young actually changes his mind. Like, I, you know, I'd say if there is a strength in me and I have a lot of weaknesses, I'd say one of the things the Lord has allowed me to do uh, is I'm very quick to recognize when I'm wrong. And I want to be proven wrong because at the end of the day, what really matters is not what I believe is, uh, I shouldn't say that, it does matter what I believe, but I need to believe the truth. And if I'm wrong, I need to be corrected. Right? Like, I'd rather just change my ways and believe the truth, right? Because believing a lie leads us all to a bad spot. So I'm not even going to tell you what I believe right now, but I'm going to set up the case why people would disagree with Trace, and we're going we're to highlight some different scriptures, and I'm going to walk you through what I think about the text. So again, if we read, it'll be on the screen here, Hebrews 6, 4 through 6, and the question we're trying to answer is, can we lose our salvation? So leave that first scripture that's up there. Up there. It says, for it's impossible... Uh, for the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tested them, tasted them and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and they've tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of age to come, if they've, and then have fallen away. So pay attention. If they have fallen away, to restore them again to repentance. So if we back up in Hebrews, and we read this text a couple weeks ago, Hebrews 3.12, look at this. 
Take care, brothers, lest there be an evil heart, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. So if you read the Bible at face value, it tells you as the believer, like Trey says, you can fall away. Now, when we read the Bible, we all bring to it our assumptions, our biases, our, our education levels, uh, our understanding of the word, how long you've been a Christian. We have all these things that we read and we make a decision. This can be good and bad. It is just human nature. So if we, a lot of our societal ills, have you ever wondered, uh, let's go back to uh, 1700s, 1800s in the United States. So the slave trade is huge. Has anyone ever wondered, where's the church at? Like how did all, how did all these people that call the name of Christ not fight against this, like with everything. Hey guys, this is wrong. Now some did, but most did not. And this is because of bad Bible translation, because somehow there was this idea that they found in Genesis that people of darker skin color were inherently inferior. So what they did is they twisted the scripture to spout these, these truths, oh, supposed truths. And then the church just said silence, they just accepted these things. And they're quiet, why all these great injustices happen. And they're quiet, and they're quiet, and quiet. And eventually then God begins to move on some people, right? So we have Abraham Lincoln, we have all these other people. That the Spirit of God, because they start to read their Bibles, like, man, this, how is this even making sense? These are we're, they're human beings. Like, how, how are we treating our brothers like this, right? But it's like, how can this church just sit quiet while these things happen? Bad theology matters. Bad doctrine matters. Right? So what is the point to these texts here? Well, the bias I bring to the Bible is if I don't understand something, I will read it at face value. So my bias when I go to the Bible is if I don't understand it, I'm going to accept what it says in black and white. Does anyone else interpret the Bible like that? So if the Bible says the sky is purple, I must be colorblind. That's how I view the, how I view the scriptures. That's what I bring to it. But I also know that as I read the Bible, there's conflicting stories. Does anyone, can you agree with that? Mm-hmm. Like you read something, and if you read it, the text as it is written, and then you can actually read something, it's like, this is not what that just said. Again, so my bias is, is okay, something is going on here. Some people's bias would be, is, well, the Bible must not be true because it's contradicted itself. Does anyone know people like that? Well, I've got to put this thing down because it just doesn't read itself. But knowing that God inspired this, then I just know there has to be some kind of truth somewhere. I'm missing something. So my bias is I'm missing something. I don't have a piece of information. How can two guys inspired by the same God seemingly come to different conclusions? That is always a warning sign to me is, Michael, you don't understand something. I'm missing something here. So the black and white point of the text here is that a believer can fall away and that it's impossible for anything to happen. So if we go to Hebrews chapter 10, we're going to see this to me is a much more troubling than what we're reading right now. Hebrews 10, 26 says this, For if we go on sitting deliberately, after receiving the knowledge of truth, there is no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God? who has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified uh, and has outraged uh, the spirit of grace. Man, outrageous. Come on, take it easy, right? <laughs> For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay it again. The Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. Okay. I don't know if you ever read that verse. Like this, These are scary verses. Right? So it's like, look, if you sin deliberately, man, there's nothing I can do for you. You have fallen into the hands of an angry God. So again, if I read this in black and white, like this makes my heart race a little bit. Because has anyone ever sinned after becoming a believer? Let me raise my hand first. So does this mean, like, again, if we read this in black and white, we are all doomed. Right? Like according to this, if we read it in black and white. I'm not saying that's correct. I'm just asking you to agree with me this is what it says. Amen? That you can see if you are unskilled in the word of God or you're a new believer or you're trying to poke holes in a believer's security, you would read this and say, well, according to you, you've sinned since you became a believer, and according to this one, you're in trouble, right? And that's fair. And again, I'm not trying to lead you down a path. Trace and I have a great responsibility to lead you into the truth. 
I'm not going to lead you down something weird, so you can let your guard down. Right? I'm not here to convince you of something that, again, you don't know what I believe here. I'm just walking you down a path. We go down here together. Now, the problem with Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, not Hebrew people, because that, yeah, don't take that as a sound bite. Now, the problem with Hebrews, and that pops up on the internet. The problem with the book of Hebrews is the author assumes you know the Old Testament. We talked about this when we did the introduction. Because he says things like, look, it's written in a place, and this other place is written. And he, if you think Trace Bluth, the scripture is crazy this morning, the author of Hebrews is mentioning scriptures all the time. And he assumes you know it. Matter of fact, here's a fun nugget that we're not, I'm not going to talk about right now. You know that first text, Trace, where he says, hey, you're unskilled in the word of God. Like, you know, you're drinking milk, you should be eating food, that you can discern good and evil. Do you remember that? Can you think of anybody else that ate food to discern good and evil? Anybody? Have any evil. Oh, come on, what's going on here? you got to sit on that one for a while. So that's a free nugget that you can think about. Like, that's awesome. And Hebrews, he's doing these kind of like witty things. He's, man, there's so much Bible going on here. So if you don't, if you're not fully versed in the Bible, things are going to go right over your head. And that's the problem with reading in black and white. Because now, when the author says something, we assume we all have a common foundation of knowledge. The problem in 2023, United States of America, is we're just not that versed in this Bible, in the Old Testament. We just, we haven't lived it. So if we take Hebrews 10 that I talked about, like I said, this is much more problematic for me as losing your, your salvation. He talks about uh, intentional sins, right? He says, like, if you sin intentionally, there remains no longer sacrifice. So what I want to do is I want to talk about how you are fine. Because when we talk about intentional sins in the Old Testament, this comes out of Numbers 15. You can write it down and read it later for time's sake. We're not gonna, I'm not going to deep dive this, but you have to trust me. Uh, Numbers 15, Leviticus 4 and 5 talks about unintentional sins. So an unintentional sin would be as as it sounds, is you, you make a mistake. You sin. You didn't mean to. Like, you weren't thinking about it. You didn't premeditate it. You sinned, right? And, there, and it talks about the offerings you give if you, you know, make an unintentional sin. Say you accidentally take um, a $5 bill you thought was yours, and you realize you spent it, and it was your neighbor's, and you stole it. It's totally unintentional, right? God sets up a, a way to be, you, to be forgiven for this. And then it talks about intentional sins. And the first intentional sin it talks about is it gives the language in the original uh, Hebrew is like shaking your fist at God. So there's a kind of sin where you go out of your way to purposely sin in order to make God angry. You're shaking your fist at right? Like, oh yeah, God of Israel, here's what I'm going to do. And then in Numbers, it actually says that person needs to be cut off from the community, whether they're a foreigner or a native Israelite. If somebody sins like that, there's no forgiveness for them. They're out of the community. Now, now the point here is intentionality with the idea of shaking your fist at God. But then keep reading. There's another kind of intentional sin where after the person has committed the intentional sin, they feel remorse. Have you ever heard of the guilt offering? That's what this is. You've intentionally sinned and you feel bad about it. And then you ask God for forgiveness. And the Bible says there is forgiveness for that intentional sin. So the difference is an intentional sin with the eye of shaking your hand at God and you feel no remorse. But there's also intentional sins, which I think we all fit into because after you've been a believer a while, you know what you're doing and yet we still sin. But a softened heart, like Trey said, we have this new heart. We feel bad about this. Like we sin and what do we do? The Bible says if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So if we just read Hebrews 10 and it says, hey, if you sin intentionally, there's nothing God can do for you. Well, black and white, that it seems like we're all doomed no matter what. But if you know the Old Testament, you realize he's talking about a special category of a person who's shaking their hand at God. Right? Like, if you reject Jesus, there's no other one coming. He's already died once and for all. So if you intentionally shaking your fist at God, there's, there's no hope for you. You're not saved. You can't be saved. You can't be redeemed. Christ isn't coming back. You're cut off. He just re- he's He's talking to a bunch of Hebrews that know this, right? So he's saying, hey, the God of the New Testament is the same as the God of the Old Testament. Like, he doesn't put up with this kind of stuff, right? So then you have to ask the question, is, could a believer ever shake their fist at God and intentionally sin like that? Well, that, 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 this is where the rubber meets the road, is because if you have the Spirit of God inside of you, like, would he lead you to do those kind of things? And we can, can we be angry at God? Sure, that's not 
That's not, that's not intentionally like, you know, that's, that's different, right? Can we have doubts? Yeah. Kind of believe the doubt? Yeah, this happens. This doesn't mean you've fallen away or you become apostate. Do we know believers that have backslid? I know people that have walked away from the faith for years that have come back. That's probably so. It doesn't mean you lose your salvation. Because we have an enemy that's actively fighting against us, blinding our minds. We live in a world, right, that's always trying to draw us back into it. But does God ever let us go? The answer is no, he does not. Listen to this. This will be very important. There's a scholar, one of my favorite scholars. He just passed away, unfortunately. He died like a week ago. His name is Michael Heiser, Dr. Michael Heiser. He says this. Doing what could not save you cannot keep you saved. Hear that again. Doing what could not save you cannot keep you saved. Could good works and not sinning save you? You need to answer. I need to hear everybody's voice. Not sinning and doing good works, can that save you? No. So not sinning and doing good works, can that keep you saved? No. Okay. Now we're getting to the bottom of this. So why do we think as believers, once we belong to him, that God now requires us of us? Right? So a believer cannot lose his salvation by sin. You need to make note of this. A believer cannot lose his salvation because of sin. It didn't save us in the first place. Why did God all of a sudden ratchet the bar up? Do you think God is in the game of playing, gotcha? You believed in me, and now you've got to perform to stay there. Because the same God that loved us in our filth and our sin and our rebellion, how much more does he not love us now that we belong to him? We have a very broken view of what this God is, or who this God is, who we serve. I want to, again, it's so good. Doing what could not save you cannot keep you saved. If you struggle with this, I'm going to, I'm going to point out some things that the, the Bible says about this. And this idea of works theology always creeps back into most believers' life. Please hear me that doubt, sin, and struggle, and backsliding are not a death sentence to you. It's not good. But it's not your death sentence. So we have to ask the question, if those things don't save us, let's all make sure we're on the same page. What does save us? Jesus. Okay, Jesus, but what does the Bible say? That we are saved by faith. Faith through grace. So the only thing we add is our faith. The Bible says God gives us faith. I'm not trying to make this about us. But we're saved by faith. So what's the one thing that keeps us in God's family? Faith. Brothers, lest there be any Evil, unbelieving heart lead you to fall away from the living God. Now, we've already said as we've been given a new heart, trace that up. And we do struggle with doubt. We do struggle with unbelief. All of us do. Like There's going to be times in your Christian walk you're not going to understand something. You're going to see something so atrocious. How is there a God? How does he love us? How does this work out? That doesn't mean you've fallen away from us. This means you're a human being living in a fallen world, right? The Bible encourages us to fight the good fight of faith. I don't know if this is going to be on the screen, but I have it written here. First he, Timothy 6.12 says, fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of eternal life, which you were called about, in which you made a good confession in the presence of witnesses. First John 5.4, for if anyone has been born of God, overcomes the world. And this is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. Your job as a believer. And we should fight against sin. We should be, all the things that trace that, 100%. But if you ask Michael Young, my primary job as a believer is faith. Got to fight the good fight of faith. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. Faith comes in community. Hebrews tells us this. Do not forsake the assembly of the brothers as so much more you see this day coming. It's faith. This is my fight. The enemy's job is to push me out of faith. There's something fascinating. This is not in my notes. Uh, it's not going to be on the screen. Uh, Peter. Mark it. Please tell me I did. Okay. Uh, second Peter. You don't have to turn. You can just listen to me. This is another one of those verses that people think you can lose your faith. It says, For after they have escaped the pollutions of this world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them, overcome the latter end is worse for them than the beginning. For it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having, than having known it to turn away from the holy commandment delivered to them. 
But it, as it has happened to them, according to the true proverb, a dog returns to his own vomit. A so have washed her wall of admire. So Peter says, like, look, it's better not to then say, right? To have known the truth than to turn back into it. But what it doesn't say is you've lost your salvation. So what happens is when a believer turns back into the world and they walk away, right? They're walking away from their faith and they go back into the world. The Bible actually says it's like it's even worse for them than it was. If they thought Christianity was hard, imagine now having a reborn soul back in the world. They don't realize you don't fit in this anymore. It's like a parasite in his body. And everything just begins to double down. So it's not that they lose their salvation, but the Bible actually, you feel kind of bad for them. Paul talks about people that get excommunicated from the church. He says, I turn them back over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that they might learn not to blaspheme against the spirit. So he doesn't say they lose their salvation. What he does say is like, man, i got to turn this guy back out of the world. And they've got to have to learn a very hard lesson. Can you imagine having a reborn eternal soul? What the enemy is going to do with you? Like you go back to trying to serve him? Can you imagine what that looks like? Like the amount of deception and hard-heartedness that goes into trying to isolate this person, not to become the prodigal son and come back and have a testimony? It's better they never have known the truth. Jesus says in Revelation, it goes, because you're... You're not hot, you're not cold, you're lukewarm. I'll spew you out of my mouth. So even more dangerous than that is the person that thinks they're saved and thinks they're okay, but they're really not. Yeah. Right? So we got to talk about this. We're gonna. Oh, we, I got to move quickly here. Let's move quick. There's something you should pay attention to. Again, you can write this down. Of all the scriptures that talk about where you can conceive losing your salvation, there always seems to be some caveat of people returning to works. Galatians 5.4 says, You are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you who have fallen away from grace. Matthew 7 talks about Jesus. People are going to the kingdom. They said, Jesus, we cast out demons in your name. We fed people. We did all these things in your name. And Jesus said, I never knew you. But you notice what the people said was all these works. We cast out demons. We did all these works. And Jesus said, I never knew you. So there is a theme that runs in the Bible. If you study at all the verses that could make you believe you can lose your salvation, there seems to be a strong emphasis on people doing works, right? This idea. If you think works will save you, you're probably not saved. You don't understand the message of works. That's it. So the people is really talking about probably really aren't saved, friends. If I talk about the, if we really look at these verses, if I return back to works to add to my salvation, that means I probably didn't understand the gospel of Jesus Christ. Which then I really have to question my salvation because I didn't really understand that it's a free gift. I probably just need to get saved. Because works can't save us. It's impossible for us to save us. We've missed it. We've already missed it. The ship has already sailed. So if you feel that you need to do something, and I, I don't know if you've ever felt like this. When I was a new Christian, I always felt like I should, I feel like I have to do something. Right? Like I haven't helped anybody. And it wasn't because like I felt the Spirit of Christ moving in me. I just felt like I had to do something. It's like I feel like I... Man, I'm not a very good person. I need something. I, need, I still need this eternal account to weigh more. And mine didn't. I just didn't understand. The problem with good works is sometimes they make us think we're saved. And the sad reality in the Bible, there's going to be a lot of people that are in church and they, get, they do good stuff. And we're going to serve alongside them. And like, of course they're saved. Look at their lives. And then they're going to go meet Jesus and they're never were saved. We can trick ourselves by our lives that we are saved. You go to church, you say all the right things, you do all the right things, but the problem is your heart's never changed. Sometimes we watch on television and we see all these famous Christians. How could they walk away from the faith? And it rattles our faith. Well, if that person can fall away, what happens to me? And I would charge you, the Bible says, if they were of us, they never would have left us. God as much as he was after you when you weren't saved, he is still aggressively after you right now. As close as you are or as far as you're away, God is always calling you in. He says, let us draw near to him. Let us come boldly. to." If you listen to everything the author of Hebrews is saying, closer, more. I I don't know, have you guys been watching the show The Chosen? There's the last scene and Peter's hugging Jesus. He says, don't let me go. Don't let me go. He's crying, don't let me go. And that's where we want to be, right? Where Jesus points like, I, he says, I won't let you go. Right? We can try to break out of his arms, but just like the, the father and the prodigal son, he's always calling us back. 
So these ideas, if you read the Bible in black and white, it does seem that you could lose your faith. The last point. Here's what you do lose. So my, my position, I think if you are truly born again, and you truly have the Spirit of God in you, you cannot lose your salvation. Right? No matter how dark it gets, you can try to walk away and all the things, but God is going to pursue you aggressively. And I even think, like, this is just my personal belief. I think, you know, we, I've seen and I've ministered to people who's had loved ones, like, let's say someone has a heart attack, and they weren't walking with the Lord. You have no idea what the Spirit of God is doing with that person before they leave that earthly body. Just like the thief on the cross, all you have to do is cry out. That's how great his grace is. Amen? I think we're going to be rather shocked about the amount of people that cry out to Jesus. Amen? Amen. Remember the laborers in the field, the guys that worked at 6 in the morning got paid the same as the people that rolled up at like 4, 35 p.m.? You guys remember all like, mm-hmm. there's all these wonderful stories where it seems hurt to us like, man, God, I had to serve you every single day. I got saved at 20. I didn't get a party. I didn't go to college. I, you know, I was faithful to one woman. I... I didn't partake of anything in this world. And you mean to tell me there's dirtbags that like lived for the devil and they cried out to you at 12.59 right before midnight and you're going to bring them in and we all get the same pay? That's exactly what he's saying. Exactly what he's saying. What's it to you what he pays his workers? Get back to work. Right? Remember the prodigal son? He had a brother. Was the brother the good guy in that story? No, he's all ticked off. Why, why does he get the fatted calf, the sweet robe and the awesome ring and the cool hat? Dad's like, what are, you, what are you talking about? You've always had it. Shut up. Man, I, this boy was lost and now he's back. And you're hung up on the robe? You can have it. I want my son. As Christians, we get so crazy sometimes about these things. Man, like this Bible says, this life is a smoke. It's a whisper. It's here and it's gone. Like I said, that, that scholar, Dr. Michael Heiser, he died at 60. This guy, like, man, just, I, I've read his books. I just love listening to this guy. He got cancer with, like, a year and died. Like, everything was healthy, completely healthy dude, Bible scholar, has been serving God, gone. We're never promised tomorrow, friends. This idea of living, like, because you find yourself in a moment of rebellion or, or you're not where you should be with the Lord and your life passes. This idea that God now extinguishes your candle and you're not there is nonsense. He loves you. Amen? Amen? If he loved us in our sin and rebellion, how much more does he not love you now that you're in his family? These things have not changed. So here's what is destroyed. 1 Corinthians 3, 9 through 15. I won't read the whole thing, but in verse 15 is our work will be destroyed. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. See, what happens here is the Bible gives us a promise that we are rewarded for our life here on earth. It always sounded kind of weird to me if I'm being honest, like a, re- like a reward, like how does this play out? I'm not going to go into it right now, but just know there are rewards. That some of you have had a tough life. And it doesn't seem like you've been rewarded in this lifetime. Like, man, where's the payout? Where, where's the, the greatness of serving God? He says, trust me, you'll be paid back. We just have to, that's faith. We trust him. But what happens, can you imagine going your whole life serving God, and then at the moment... When God tests your works, it's all destroyed because it wasn't done in faith. This is what the believer can do. You can serve him for 40 years on this planet and watch everything go up in smoke. You notice it says, you'll be saved, but everything else is destroyed. How is it destroyed? It's because you didn't do it in faith. Maybe you believed that that was actually earning you brownie points with God. James teaches us that faith without works is dead. Faith before works is nonsense. But once you have faith, you have to have works. That means you have to be doing something, right? It's not enough just to get saved. This is Trace's whole argument. Like, yeah, once you're saved, there is proof that you're saved. What is the proof? Well, hopefully your life is starting to change. Hopefully you're treating your spouse better. Hopefully you're giving money. Hopefully you're praying. doesn't mean we're perfect. We're all going to miss it. But you should have, you should not be the same person. I've told you a hundred times, if you knew me at, let's say 18 or 19, he probably wouldn't have liked me. Very conceited, very self-focused. I've always been a loudmouth, right? Always thought I was funny, just trying to tell jokes all the time. That really does rub people wrong. It's surprising. Imagine that. So if you think I'm bad now, it's like, man, how bad must have this child been? 
right? But I can actually see the Lord at work in my life. I have a documented history of how he's changed me. doesn't mean it's great, but boy, it's a big change. Amen? So hopefully you see that too. First Peter 1.7, the genuineness of your faith being tested, much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found the result of praise, honor, and glory. God is only interested in your faith, faith which leads to obedience. Faith and life are the long game, and as the promise in Philippians 1.6 says, that God is faithful to finish what he has started in you. Amen? So my closing thought would be, is if you are a black and white person, the Bible will tell you a lot of things. But if you read the weight of the text of the Bible and understand what it is saying, the believer does have a security of salvation. But what isn't promised you is a life of ease and comfort. Whether you stay in the church or you leave the church, either way you have a target on your back now. So what is promised, like, hey, stick with the one that can protect you and save you, the one that you believed in from your youth. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's stop.